everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 18 of our discussion of Till We Have Faces. Um, and tonight we're going to return to the House of Ungit, uh, where we left Orawal last time. Uh, just a quick reminder before we begin, Sunshine Moot is this weekend in just a couple days. Um, I'll be down in Orlando uh, hanging out with wonderful people down there, and you are welcome to join us. We're going to be at the campus of Rollins College um, near Orlando, and um, we're going to be talking about songs and poetry and lots of fun stuff, and uh, you are, of course, are welcome to join us remotely as well as in person, so anyone can join us from anywhere. And if you join us remotely or in person, you will uh, get access to recordings of all the sessions. So anyway, that is what is happening this weekend. And uh, I am uh, I am I am pretty excited, as always, uh, to head back down to Orlando. It feels like um, being spoiled these days, uh, having my my trip uh, to summertime Australia in January, and then my trip to Sunshine Moot uh, after that. I get, um, uh, it is um, a lot of warm weather for a New Englander in uh, February, in January and February. All right, but let us get back to the text here. So, um, we had, we were looking at Orowal's, so this is a description by geriatric Orwell of geriatric Orwell, right? This is an experience that she is having after she wrote her first book. And so one of the things that we spent a lot of time in the last part of class last time discussing was what we can see from this about her attitude towards the gods. That had clearly been changing. She was announcing that very clearly at the beginning of book two. Um, and yet we could still see her what seemed like pretty significant resistance, if not actual scorn of the gods in her description. Um, and um, so uh, let me just reread this last one. We, we've talked about it already, um, but uh, uh, let me just remind you of this last paragraph because I think it's, it's, an, it's important to keep this in mind as we move forward. I saw the terrible girls sitting in rows down both sides of the house, each cross-legged at, at the door of her cell. Thus they sat, year after year, and usually barren after a few seasons, till they turned into the toothless crones who were hobbling about the floor, tending fires and sweeping, sometimes after a swift glance round, stooping as suddenly as a bird to pick up a coin or a half-gnawed bone and hide it in their gowns. And I thought how the seed of men that might have gone to make hardy boys and fruitful girls was drained into that house and nothing given back. And how the silver that men had earned hard and needed was also drained in there and nothing given back. And how the girls themselves were devoured and nothing and were given nothing back. Um, okay, so um, it's clear that in book one, right, this paragraph would have been part of a scorching um, attack on the gods, right? That she would have been, um, she would have been pointing to all of this as clear and obvious evidence of the malevolence of the gods. Um, and I am not sure 
um, I'm not sure that there isn't still an element of that here. Um, that she is still... That what she is describing here is still a piece of honesty. Um, so, remembering for a second, there's an important question of frame here, right? Um, when did she write the opening to book two? When did she write this? Um, we were used to the fact that in book one, there was a long scope of time that had passed, right? We knew from the beginning that she was writing the book decades later. She announced how old she was, right? And then was proceeded to tell of the things that happened when she was a child, right? And throughout book one, we knew um, that she was writing at a very significant remove in time from this later perspective, looking back on all those things. And she discussed the significance of that, of course, as we talked about uh, the last couple classes, the what happened to her when she did that, when she did look back at it from that vantage point. But what is less clear is that is what perspective she's writing this from now. Um, remember that what she is describing, what she says she's going to be describing here in book two, is the process of surgery, right? She keeps talking about that. She keeps saying, like, and still those divine surgeons were at work. That is to say, all of these experiences that she's describing, the meeting with Terran, the eunuch, right, where from whom she learned about Redival's perspective, um, the, of course, the big confrontation with Anset Bardia's widow, this experience in the house of Ungit, all of these things are things that she has told us from her narrator's perspective here in book two were part of a chain of things that led to something, right? Um, that led to what seems like a very significant change of heart. But I don't think we have reason to believe that she has had that change of heart already, or at least not in full, at the time that this is happening, right? At the time that she was sitting here, looking at these things and having these thoughts in the House of Ungit. So that's what I meant when I said before, I think that what we may be getting here is another piece of honesty. Instead of her looking back at this scene through the lens of her at least slightly later point of view, it's not decades later, right, as it was before, she didn't have decades left. Um, but instead of looking back at things and describing this from the point of view of wherever she is by the time she writes book two, she is telling us how she was experiencing it at the time because what she's telling us is about that process, is about how she came to see what she came to see, how she came to learn what she came to learn. And so here I think um, if, we, if there seems to be some uh, challenge, right, in reconciling still the, the sort of the rejection, this 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 rejection of the gods, this perception of the waste and the devouring seems to be very much colored with the same kind of um, uh, uh, rejection, um, complaint against the gods as she had before. Um, well, again, that would probably be because this is still part of the process. Remember what the process has been, right? The first small step with realizing maybe I had gotten rid of all wrong, right? Or at least, or more accurately, maybe I had misunderstood my own role 
in Redival's becoming what she became, essentially. Um, and then in and then with Ansett, right? That enormous revelation to her, and we, we focused on that last time, uh, looking at what she took from that and how her eyes were opened to herself and her own love for Bardia, which had become nine-tenths hatred. Um, and uh, so that's... Um, Again, this process of her coming to understand herself, but notice none of that has actually had anything directly to do with the gods themselves yet, right? That, it seems, is still to come in her process, and that's part of what she is describing here. So I believe the frame of reference here, um, like in this moment, the moment that she's describing, when she was sitting here in the House of Ungit with, with Arnhem, um, she was still mostly in her previous frame of mind as far as her attitude towards the gods is concerned. Um, though I think also the suggestion, Jackrabbit, that you were just making about um, uh, that it seems more like a critique of organized religion than an attack on the gods, I, I, do, I do think there's an element in that. We saw that she said that her own, the work of memory upon her, right, the process of writing, you know, the, the book one, was already beginning to change, to take a lot of the, um, the ground out from under her charges against the gods themselves, right? So from the beginning, she has already been beginning to change in that regard. And yet I do think that um, certainly we still see her looking around at the House of Ungit itself and the practices in the House of Ungit and saying, this is simply horrible. This is simply horrible. Um, but again, I don't think we can make too many assumptions about how far she's come in her attitude towards the gods uh, either. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting, Eric. Eric says, also her conversation so far has been in herself. Once you've done that, you tend to need to look at all the other important things or moments in your life with the new outlook you have, and that part she hasn't really done yet. Yeah, um, Eric, I think that, that, that might be a good way to think about it. That is, what the surgery so far has led to is her taking a different look at herself, um, seeing things, realizing truths about herself that are long overdue, right? But yes, as far as what, how does that impact? How does that change um, impact her view of other things, like the gods, right, and and the House of Ungit? Um, that seems to be not quite in process yet. But let's 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 continue and look at her contemplations here, because of course, what she will come to contemplate is Ungit herself. 
Then I looked at Unget herself. <laughs> that was a better segue than I thought. Then I looked at Unget herself. She had not, like most sacred stones, fallen from the sky. The story was that at the very beginning she had pushed her way up out of the earth, a foretaste of, or an ambassador from, whatever things may live and work down there, uh, one below the other, all the way down under the dark and weight and heat. I have said she had no face, but that meant she had a thousand faces, for she was very uneven, lumpy, and furrowed, so that, as when we gaze into a fire, you could always see some face or other. Okay. Um, she had not, like most sacred stones, fallen from the sky. Um, we'll come back to this passage in a little bit. Ungit has pushed her way up out of the earth. She is a... F and here I think we're getting some version of the sacred stories of Ungit, right? A foretaste of, or an ambassador from, whatever things may live and work down there, one below the other, all the way down under the dark and weight and heat. Okay. Yes, chthonic is the term, Ambrosius. She's a chthonic goddess. Um, so we have within the mythology, we have this glimpse anyway, within the mythology of Gloam, not just about the origin of Ungit, but about this sort of their larger worldview, right? They have an idea not only of an underworld, um, which I think has already been, I think we already have evidence that that's associated with the dead, um, when I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, whenever Orwal has referred to the Deadlands, which has happened on a couple of occasions in Book One, um, I think she always did say down to the Deadlands, right? Um, so I, but notice she's not describing, not that she's describing much, but she doesn't seem to be speaking of a land of the dead like we see in Homer, for instance. That is like a, 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 a place where mindless shades drift around, right? In fact, she describes things living and working down there, one below the other, all the way down under the dark and weight and heat, so that there's this, there's not just an underworld, there's like a hierarchy of underworlds, right? As you, but as you go down deep, and, and so Ungit comes up like an ambassador. She represents those places, right? So if these are divine places, um, if these are, uh, if these are, you know, godly um, uh, persons down there, right? Um, then Ungit is there is the the one who has come to interface with us on the surface here, right? Um, and um, and I don't, I'm not quite sure what to make of the multiple levels, but living and working is what they do. They live and work down there. They do things. We don't know what they do, but they do things, right? One below the other, all the way down. Um, 
and at the base, I think, of those, that Ungit, I think, comes not necessarily from the higher regions of those, right? But this idea of her coming up from the deep, deep bottom. Um, at least that's what I'm assuming. Um, but notice she's not only an ambassador, she's also a foretaste of that, which is another reason why I think it's about death as well, right? And so there is a, there's definitely a, we've been saying rather casually that Ungit is a fertility goddess, and that certainly seems to be true, but Ungit is also associated in this way with the Deadlands. She's a foretaste of death as well. Um, it's a very much kind of cycle of life situation with Ungit, right? Um, she has come up like a foretaste of the Deadlands themselves, a representative from the Deadlands. Um, places where humans only go when they die, right? Um, down to the Deadlands. Anyway, more on this in a little bit. And by, by which I mean we should get back to this later today. That's my goal. But just that's an important point, and we'll return to it. Um, the other important point here are the many faces of Ungit. Ungit has lots of... Ungit has no face. And because she has no face, she has a thousand faces. For she was very uneven, lumpy, and furrowed, so that as when we gaze into a fire, you could always see some face or other. So Ungit has a thousand different faces, um... And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that those faces, the different faces that you see, say something about you, right? Um, okay. Arnhem, I whispered. Who is Ungit? I think, Queen, said he, his voice strange out of the mask. She signifies the earth, which is the womb and mother of all living things. This was the new way of talking about the gods which Arnhem and others had learned from the fox. Um, uh, you, you might be sort of pleased to imagine uh, the eventual victory that the fox has won over the old priest of Ungit, right? In that now, <clears throat> the successor of the old priest of Ungit has now learned the fox's own philosophy and now uses Greek uh, sort of language in order to talk about the sacred things of Ungit now. Um, she signifies the earth, which is the womb and mother of all things. If she is the mother of all things, said I, in what way is in what way more is she the mother of the god of the mountain? He is the air and the sky, for we see the clouds coming up from the earth in mists and exhalations. So the sky is the child of the earth. Right? So this is the um the allegorical the allegorization of the gods, right, which the which he's learned from the fox. Then why do the stories sometimes say he's her husband too? That means that the sky by its showers makes the earth fruitful. If that's all they mean, why do they wrap it up in so strange a fashion? 
"'Doubtless,' said Arnhem, and I could tell that he was yawning inside the mask, being worn out from his, with his vigil. "'Doubtless to hide it from the vulgar.' I would torment him no more, but I said to myself, "'It's very strange that our fathers should first think it worth telling us that the rain falls out of the sky, and then, for fear such a notable secret should get out, why not hold their tongues, wrap it up in a filthy tale, so that no one could understand the telling?' Um... This is an argument that Lewis has made in other of his nonfiction prose and other places. Um, that is uh, the kind of teasing that he does of learned um, allegorizing of earlier eras. Um, this is exactly how they talked. You know, they would say that the the true meaning of these early of these myths is like an allegory of like the rain falling and nurturing the crops. Um, and that they had to be told, uh, they had to be couched in sacred stories, which were allegorical, in order to, in, in order to hide, uh, this, you know, the the profound truths from the vulgar. And C.S. Lewis, at several points, uh, I, I, there's more than one place in his other, like in his critical fiction, uh, his critical nonfiction and stuff, scholarly nonfiction, where he just points out how silly this is, right? That, um, like, if you're reading mythology this way you're obviously doing it wrong right because uh it's like if because usually like the deep dark mystery mystery that is being kept from the vulgar lest they discover um such a notable secret is something like the rain falls and makes the crops grow right um and uh anyway yeah so that's um uh this is, he is, Lewis is here putting into Orwell's mouth a criticism of exactly this kind of thinking. And this kind of thinking was pretty, was pretty, um, pretty common. Um, and yes, Jack Rabbit, you are absolutely right to remember this. Jack Rabbit says, it cracks me up that Orwell, who has become a sort of personification of Ungit herself, is having this conversation with Arnhem, who is basically representative of the god of the mountain. Ungit is asking, who is Ungit and her son, husband, and the god of the mountain is answering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, especially since... Yeah, both of them are at the moment she is asking this, participating in an allegorical ritual, right? Um, so yes, there's lots of layers of things happening here, and you are absolutely right, Jack Rabbit, to re to recall our attention to the fact that she herself is involved. She's not only involved as monarch in the allegorical story of this ritual itself, right? But yes, the uh, likeness between um, Orwell and Ungit has already been something that has been pretty clearly, um, pretty clearly emerging. Um, okay, let's keep going. The drums went on. My back began to ache. Presently, the little door on my right opened, and a woman, a peasant, came in. You could see she had not come for the birth feast, but on some more pressing matter of her own. She had done nothing, as even the poorest contrived for that feast, to make herself gay, and the tears were wet on her cheeks. She looked as if she had cried all night, and in her hands she held a live pigeon. 
One of the lesser priests came forward at once, took the tiny offering from her, slid it open with his stone knife, splashed the little shower of blood over Ungit, where it became like dribble from the mouth of the face I saw in her, and gave the, the body to one of the temple slaves. The peasant woman sank down on her face at Ungit's feet. She lay there for a, lo a very long time, so shaking that anyone could tell how bitterly she wept. But the weeping ceased. She rose up on her knees and put back her hair from her face and took a long breath. Then she rose to go, and as she turned I could look straight into her eyes. She was grave enough, and yet I was very close to her and could not doubt it. It was as if a sponge had been passed over her. The trouble was soothed. She was calm, patient, able for whatever she had to do. "'Has Ungit comforted you, child?' I asked. "'Oh, yes, queen,' said the woman, her face almost brightening. "'Oh, yes, Ungit has given me great comfort. There is no goddess like Ungit.' "'Do you always pray to that Ungit?' said I, nodding toward the shapeless stone. "'And not to that?' Here I nodded toward our new image, standing tall and straight in her robes, and, whatever the fox might say of it, the loveliest thing our land has ever seen. "'Oh, always this, queen,' said she. "'That other, the Greek Ungit, she wouldn't understand my speech. She's only for nobles and learned men. There's no comfort in her.'" Okay, um... First of all, do you remember, I, I actually, I'm proud of myself, skipped a paragraph, I think. And in the paragraph that I skipped, you may recall that the face that she saw uh, in the Ungut stone looked a lot like Bata, uh, her, her previous, um, you know, her, her nurse when she was a kid, um, whom she eventually hanged, you may recall. Um, so it was that that bata face, which, when the blood is sprinkled over the stone, uh, ends up running down the stone. And with the face that she was looking at, the bata face that she was looking at, it looks like it's uh, drooling, drooling blood. Yeah, it was hard, Devorah, uh, skipping that paragraph. But at least I've talked about it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so... Orowal witnesses, having talked about the devouring, the um, how Ungit and the house of Ungit does nothing but take, right? To take the sacrifices and the blood, to take the money, to take the seed, right? All of those things, just to take, to take the lives of the temple prostitutes and to give nothing back, right? Um... Then she sees this woman walk in here, who has been given something. Um, Ungit has given me great comfort. There's no goddess like Ungit. And this is not... The important thing is the description first, right? Orwal is not just interviewing a person, right? She's not just like approaching some random woman on the street and saying, Hey, uh, what do you think of Ungit, right? Uh, doing a, you know, a popularity poll. Right or something like that. She watched the comfort happen. She was sitting there watching this woman coming in who had been weeping all night. Watched her lying there weeping on the floor at the feet of Ungit's uh, stone. And then 
saw her, I was very close and could not doubt it, right? Could see how comforted she was. The trouble was soothed. She was calm, patient, able for whatever she had to do. Something happened there. And so she asks her about it. Right, and so that's the context in which the woman responds, yes, Unget has given me great comfort. There's no goddess like Unget. She, Orwell, has never been able to understand, has never been able to see anything that Unget gave, right? Um, and yet, she does seem to give something. This woman has received something from this act of worship. Um, the Greek unget. It's not that the Greek unget has reduced unget. Um, but has made unget irrelevant. What did they do? What is the main difference between the old unget and the new unget? The new unget has a face. The new unget has a likeness, a very definite likeness, right? Yes, Argent Paintbrush, that's exactly it. Um, has a face, and therefore, Liz, as you say, only one face, right? Um, only one face, and to this woman, a face who wouldn't know her, right? I love that bit about she, she wouldn't understand my speech. She's the Greek unget. You have to talk Greek to her, right? She doesn't understand my language. She's only for nobles and learned men. Um, so there's something in that thousand-faced stone in which each person sees their own unget face, right? Um, there is something apparently in that which is part of the process, right? Part of the comfort. And she, the peasant woman, can't even can't even understand, can't even connect to the new Unget. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Maureen is remembering that the title of the book, Till We Have Faces, is plural, right? Yes. Um, look what happened when Unget is given a face. Um, remember also what happened to Orwal when she lost her face. Remember the... We saw the same effect, right? What did people see in her face or imagine of her face once she wore her veil? What they wanted to imagine, right? Um, men imagined a beauty so striking that it would you know, drive any man mad who saw it. Um, right? Beautiful women imagine something monstrous and so hideous that it had to be covered up, right? Um, I mean, this we, we were noticing at the time all of the different things, theories, right? And, you know, and the people who are imagining, uh, you know, a goddess, even something like a, a, the shadow brute, right? 
in all of those things, there's still a kind of projection of desire, right? A kind of uh, a kind of uh, a kind of otherness. Um, I think there's a there's a clear similarity between the perception of faces in the faceless ungut stone and this divine mystery that begins to be attached to Orowal when she loses her face. And the corollary to that is how Ungit herself loses not her power, because we're not told that the new Ungit is impotent, just that this woman can't connect to her at all. Right? That's what she's lost, is the ability to um, to connect. Um, yes, Liz, you're absolutely right. Um, Liz says there's this weird tension where not having a face is about hiding, but it also not having a face is what lets Ungit be Ungit and lets Orowal be queen. Yeah. 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 Um, I would in- I think that one of the things that these patterns are pointing us to is about the relationship between or the um, uh, those boundaries between the mortal and the divine that we were looking at much more back in the psyche conversation earlier on. Um, That was what we saw in that passage about the effect of her veiling, uh, Orwell's veiling, right? Um, That she had become this mysterious goddess-like figure. Um, They had, her people had come to look at her as this mythic um, magical figure, divine figure. Uh, So there's something about facelessness. And then again, remember also her, Orwell's charges against the gods in book one, right? Why do they not reveal themselves plainly? Why do the gods... She didn't use these words, right? But in retrospect, we might summarize her charges by saying, why do the gods hide their faces from us? Why don't? Why can't we just talk to each other face to face? They could do that if they wanted to, but they don't, right? That was what she was saying back in book one. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Jackie asks, is it too personal, the ungit with a face? I don't know. See, that's the that's the, the irony, Jackie, right? Like, it's, to this woman, it's too impersonal, right? She can't, she can connect, like, the ungit without the face can connect with her and understand her, right? It can, she can be to this peasant woman, what this peasant woman needs. Um, whereas the frozen one-shot face of the Greek ungut can only be one thing, and it is not. doesn't happen to be for her. Again, she doesn't say so. She, you know, she's useless or powerless, just that she's not relevant to her. Um, yes, Yero, that's the irony here is that the ungit without the face is personal. In other words, I think one of the things that we're beginning 
to grope our way towards when we look at this is that in if we can paraphrase Orwell's complaints as I was just doing, her complaints to the gods and saying, why don't you talk to us face? Why don't you show your faces to us? Why don't you speak to us clearly? Why don't you meet us face to face? Is because that wouldn't work. How they connect with people, as we see Ungit apparently connecting with this woman, is because of her facelessness, right? Um, yeah. Um, and yes, Cal Elros, absolutely. The same thing happened to Psyche. Her relationship with the god of the mountain was only ruined and changed once she saw his face. Exactly. Uh, Orwell had said, what possible reason could there be for your husband to hide his face from you? Right? He, the only reason to hide his face is if he has something to hide. Right? Um, but... Psyche herself believed all along that there could be other reasons for that. And just as there was apparently she believed that she was undergoing a process uh, of encountering him, of meeting him, um, of crossing that boundary between the mortal and the divine world so too Orwell could be led there, right? That maybe, remember, maybe in time she could come see and stuff. And Orwell interpreted that as Psyche saying something along the lines of maybe eventually he will deign to let you see him. He will, like, deign to show himself to you, right? But maybe it isn't that. Maybe there's more to it than that, in fact. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's keep going. Soon after that, it was noon, and the sham fight at the western door had to be done, and we all came out into the daylight after Arnhem. I had seen often enough before what met us there, the great mob, shouting, He is born! He is born! And whirling their rattles and throwing wheat seed into the air, all sweaty and struggling and climbing on, climbing on one another's backs to get a sight of Arnhem and the rest of us. So this happens every year, right? This is the, this is the way this particular celebration happens. Whirling rattles, throwing wheat seed in the air. Um... Note, remember, of course, just a brief note, the great mob. Right? Remember the disdain with which she has always looked at the people ever since they turned on Psyche back in the old days. Right? She's never trusted the mob, the people, and has always looked down on them. Today it struck me in a new way. It was the joy of the people that amazed me. There they stood, where they had waited for hours, so pressed together they could hardly breathe, each doubtless with a dozen cares and sorrows upon him, who has not. Yet every man and woman and the very children, looking as if the world was well, because a man dressed up as a bird had walked out of a door after striking a few blows with a wooden sword. Even those who were knocked down in the press to see us made light of it, and indeed laughed louder than the others. 
I saw two farmers whom I well knew for bitterest enemies. They'd wasted more of my time when I sat in judgment than half the remainder of my people put together. Clasp hands and cry, he's born, brothers for the moment. Yes, fire swans, it is, um, it is easy to see a kind of parallel, right? There's a definite Easter vibe, right, of this particular feast. Um, I would, I don't want to resist that, but I don't want to get distracted by that either. That is to say, I think we would be making a mistake if we let that connection lead us to begin just thinking about Easter and the resurrection of Christ and stop focusing on the ceremony and gloom. But I agree with you. And I think it is important that there is a definite Easter vibe here, right? Um, the way I will defend not talking about Easter here is by saying, I think we will best understand what Lewis might be wanting to suggest about Easter if we don't focus on Easter and instead focus on what he's describing here. Um, anyway, okay. So, once again, what she is primarily struck by is the, what? The genuineness of the religious experience of the people, just like the woman. Right, so she she sees it in that one woman who comes in and prays to Ungit, and now she sees it with everyone. Her emphasis has been not only on like the horrible wastefulness and devouring of the whole house of Ungit paraphernalia, right? But um, rigmarole, perhaps, is the better word. Um, but um, but in addition, she's now being confronted with the fact. Remember, oh yeah, I was going to say, in, in addition, she was also focusing on its artificiality. Remember how she was talking about how the fox would have poked holes in it, right? And how the, you know, it's like a a fakery of a fakery, right? The, you know, the, 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 the kind of, what seems to her this pointless play acting of this ritual, right? And when she was describing it, when she was describing the pointless... Um, um, she, when she was describing the what she was describing as if it were a totally pointless play acting, um, now she sees, in a sense, from the other side, right? She now actually pays attention to the people and she sees their joy. It was the joy of the people that amazed me. She thinks about, like, from a, a sort of a pragmatic standpoint... Right? They'd been waiting for hours. They should be tired. They should be grumpy. They should be uncomfortable. So pressed together they could hardly breathe. She's already emphasized that they're all sweaty and struggling. Right? So you got this sweaty, stinking, cramped, uncomfortable crowd of people uh, jostling together for, uh, for hours, right, on their feet. And of course, all of them have a dozen cares and sorrows upon them, right? Who doesn't have a dozen cares and sorrows upon them, um, you know, in like the rest of their life? And yet, 
And notice here she emphasizes the artificiality again. Right. Every man and woman and the very children looking as if all the world was well because a man dressed up as a bird had walked out of a door after striking a few blows with a wooden sword. How strange, how crazy this is. Even those who were knocked down in the press seem to make light of it. That is, you know, the people you would most expect to not be into it, right? Um, to have something of their own causes for unhappiness intrude upon their experience, right? Um, and they're not. And even these two farmers who have sued each other, you know, brought each other to her judgment seat to reconcile their bitter differences between them, often before, are clasping hands and crying, he's born together, brothers for the moment, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, Fire Swans, you're right. It's like she's an alien experiencing a completely foreign culture. Exactly, exactly. She's been, um, I, Fire Swans goes on, it's striking because she spent her she spent her adult life as an objectively good queen, which means she's done well by her people, but knows nothing about them. Yes, and Fire Swans, what I would say there is it shows how she has distanced herself from that uh, from that experience. Like there there has been something she has not shared with the people. Remember. Uh, her locking Orowal up inside her womb, right? Um, and, you know, uh, until she died, hoping she would die, right? Um, and um, she has distanced herself from human, from the rest of human experience deliberately, distanced herself from human experience. Um, but this in particular, even now, as she's describing this, she can't see it. What's the it I'm talking about? Again, like the woman kneeling before the statue of Ungit, the, uh, the, the Ungit rock um, in the house, these people, they are seeing something. There is something that is, in fact, bringing joy to all the people. There is something which is making every man, woman, and the very children look as if the world was well. There is something that is making these two farmers the bitterest of enemies clasp hands and cry, he's born together, brothers for the moment. There is an experience that all of these people are having that she doesn't share, doesn't share to the point of not even comprehending it, not being able to see it at all. One of the things that we... Um, uh, one of the things that we can uh, so one of the issues because we were talking about this in connection with the face 
we were talking about, well, the interface between, which I guess we might as well call it, between the human and the divine, right? The mortal world and the divine world. But there's more than one way in which this happens, right? And what she is suddenly seeing is she seeing it happen around her. Um, they, the woman, the peasant woman, who comes in and prays to Ungit, sacrifices and prays to Ungit, the people in the crowd here on the festival of, of the birth are encountering the divine. The divine is touching their lives in some way. It's, it is, something has genuinely happened to override the discomfort they should be feeling, right? The cares and sorrows that lie upon them, even the enmity experienced by those two farmers. Something else is touching them now. Something else is happening. And she doesn't get it. She hasn't experienced it. Um, so yeah, she is describing it as um, something alien. As if she were uh, were alien, right? Um, were the alien and had nothing, had, had no idea about this stuff. Um, yeah, I agree she's starting to wake up, Maureen. I think that that's true. But we can see that this sort of thing is still unknown to her. All right, more. We'll keep going. Now, we come to visions. She goes home after this ceremony, and she has a dream. Get up, girl, said a voice. I opened my eyes. My father stood beside me. And instantly all the long years of my queenship shrank up small like a dream. Whoop. What should we be remembering? I'm going to do this a lot, by the way. I'm going to stop. make sure we're making the connections and remembering the things we're supposed to remember. My, the long years of my queenship shrank up small like a dream should remind us of... What? What should it say? Yes, Orwell locked inside. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the queen locked Orwell up in her womb, right? And bricked it up, sealed it up, so that it would shrivel and shrink up and die, right? And now, in, the, in this dream, her father is standing beside her bed. Yes, Orwell is locked up inside the queen, shrinking. She is unpregnant with Orwell, remember? Um, and now her queenship shrinks up small, like a dream. Right? Now she's Orwell with a queen shrunk up inside. So we have that, like, that clear reversal. Okay. How could I have believed in them? That is, the years of her queenship. How could I ever have thought I should escape from the king? I got up from my bed obediently and stood before him. When I made to put on my veil, he said, None of that folly, do you hear? And I laid it obediently aside. Come with me to the pillar room, he said. I followed him down the stair. The whole palace was empty, and we went into the pillar room. He looked all round him, and I became very afraid, because I felt sure he was looking for that mirror of his. 
but I had given it to Redival when she became Queen of Fars. And what would he do to me when he learned that I had stolen his favorite treasure? Remember that scene? Let's make sure we remember that scene. The king had a mirror. It was one of his prized possessions, right? It was one of the biggest and clearest mirrors. Very clear mirrors were very, very unusual in the ancient world. Um, so he had a big, clear mirror, which was one of his prized possessions. And of course, you'll remember the scene, which is, I agree, Maureen, hard to forget, when he brings Orowal, marches Orowal over to the mirror and makes her stare at herself and uh, confronts her with her ugliness, right? So when the king marches her down into the pillar room, her immediate anxiety is that he's going to be looking for the mirror and it's not, she knows it's not there because she gave it away. But he went to one corner of the room and found there, which were strange things to find in such a place, two pickaxes and a crowbar. To your work, goblin, he said, and made me take one of the picks. He began to break up the paved floor in the center of the room, and I helped him. It was very hard labor because of the pain in my back. When we had lifted four or five of the big stone flags, we found a dark hole like a wide well beneath them. Okay, what should we be remembering? Right, he's calling her Goblin, which he did several times when she was alive. That was his way of characterizing her ugliness. Yes, he's sending her to the mines, right? Good. He always used to send people to the mines, not because anything good was to come of the mines, but as just a, a way of killing people, right? It was like a form of execution to him, right? Um, good. What else? What else? Orwell fixed this floor during her queenship. Yeah, she talked about that. Um, she made it much less of a tripping hazard, right? Yeah, so he is, he immediately sets to undoing some of the work that she has done in her queenship. Here in the pillar room, the very center of her work as queen. Good. What else? What else should we be remembering here? More stuff. Yes, the underworld. Yes, we have a, we have a hole going down. Just like those worlds where others live and work down below that the Ungit Stone rose up through. Absolutely. Absolutely. She has a pain on her back from sitting on the rock in the ceremony. Her back began to hurt her while she was sitting there. Um, uh, is, uh, is why she has a pain in her back. Um, but the pain in her back should also remind us of other things. Remember when she couldn't sleep? What does the queen do when she can't sleep? Yeah, the rock dug into her back and now she's digging into the rock. Yeah, she goes to the pillar room and works there, right? Works and works away all night in the, in the pillar room. And remember her description of her physical pains, right? Um, sitting in her hard chair with freezing fingers and cold feet, right? And all the, the and aching head, right? the sort of torment uh, that she punishes her, that, you know, she ends up punished with, right, um, when she could not sleep because she was hearing the chains creaking and such. Um, so, yes, Ambrosia, she made her own minds to send herself to, and ones like Bardia, who was worked to death. Yes, exactly. So the connection between the pillar room and the mines, the mines aren't the only place where one can be worked to death, said Ansett. Yes, all of those connections should be coming together here. So, by the way, this is, if, if when reading Till We Have Faces the first time, you find yourself coming to these visions at the end and saying, 
whoa, this gets really trippy and I really don't know what to do with all this stuff. That's very understandable. I had that first reaction too. Um, but the answer to what do you do with all of these visions is like all of them are this is why we've been sp spending so much time, right? This is why we paid so much attention to everything along the way, because it all comes together uh, in these visions. These visions are designed to call back to just dozens and dozens of earlier passages and bring all of those things, um, bring all those things together. Um, okay. Let's keep going. Throw yourself down, said the king, seizing me by the hand. And however I struggled, I could not free myself, and we both jumped together. When we had fallen a long way, we alighted on our feet, nothing hurt by our fall. It was warmer down here, and the air was hard to breathe, but it was not so dark that I could not see the place we were in. It was another pillar room, exactly like the one we had left, except that it was smaller and all made, floor, walls, and pillars, of raw earth. And here also my father looked about him, and once again I was afraid he would ask what I had done with his mirror. But instead he went into a corner of the earthen room and found there two spades, and put one in my hand, and said, Now work. Do you mean to slug a bed all your life? So then we had to dig a hole in the center of the room. And this time the labor was worse than before, for what we dug was all tough, clinging clay, so that you had rather to cut it out in squares with a spade than to dig it. And the place was stifling. But at last we had done so much that another black hole opened beneath us. This time I knew what he meant to do to me. So I tried to keep my hand from his, but he caught it and said, Do you begin to set your wits against mine? Throw yourself down. Oh, no, 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 no further down. Mercy, said I. All right, so um, do you remember Argent Paintbrush where we got that line before? Do you mean to slug a bed all your life? That was relatively recent. Do you remember who said that and where? Yes, she said it. Well, not to Bardia, but of Bardia, right? When Bardia, being ill with what turned out to be his terminal illness, hadn't come to court, right? And she she called for him and said, what does he mean, to slug a bed all his life? Um really just think how painful that connection is, right? In retrospect. Um, and now he is directing it to her. Do you mean to slug a bed all your life? Right? Um, what did she want Bardia to do? Instead of slug a bedding, <laughs> slugging a bed all his life, um, was to come to the pillar room and work with her. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Leaf. <laughs> Leaf has an opposite T.S. Eliot quotation from, uh, from Proof Rock. Uh, yes, yes, it's sort of like that. Um, it's the, uh, as if a magic lantern through the nerves and patterns on a screen is the, the quote that he's making. Um, but, um, yeah, okay, so, um, The parallel to Bardia and the mines and the pillar room, that whole kind of nexus that we were already connecting, gets emphasized, painfully emphasized when he repeats her words back to, when the king repeats her words back to her like that. Um, 
And um, what else? Of course, we get his quotation. Do you begin to set your wits against mine? What do we do with that? That one's easy to remember, right? Because that was the king himself saying that to her. Why is he saying that again here? What do we do with that? Do you begin to set your wits against mine? What was the answer to that question? She said, yes, exactly. She said, yes. And I agree with you. Um, uh, Fire Swans was saying, that's the point when the queen emerged. And Maureen says that was the mask, right? Yeah, it was about her. Um, it was about her, her, uh, her, her veil, right? He was, he told her to remove her veil and she refused, right? Um, so this not only is a recapitulation of that moment, but then a reversal of that moment, right? Instead of yes, she says, oh, no, 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 right? We see her weakness. And of course, she already, she immediately set her veil aside when he told her to, right? He obedi she obediently um, declined to put on her veil like she normally like she normally did. So yes, we have Maureen, the undoing of the queen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, yes, Dorward, I agree. The mirror is gone, but they're in reflections of the pillar room. We keep getting these deeper and deeper down reflections of the pillar room and reflections of them and almost like refractions as well. Right, not just recalling things, but it's as in this case, reversing things. Right. Um, no further down, mercy. Um, And I agree. I, one of you was talking about how this is not exactly, um, um, not exactly a beginning here, right? When um, uh, when he says, "Do you begin to set your wits against mine?" and that that seems a little, almost a little odd. I mean, it works. I mean, we recall it, right? So, um, as a as a as, as a callback to that moment, it works. Um, but it sounds odder. In this case, because this is, she set her wits against him a long time. She, it's well past beginning, right? Um, uh, it's almost like it would be more appropriate if you said, are you prepared to, uh, to stop, to end setting your wits against mine, right? But that isn't what he says. He says to begin again. Do you begin to set your wits against mine? Um as if she gets a chance, what, to re, to redo that? I, you know, uh, in some sense, in some different sense? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Yarrow, I agree. It, she, she said, is this an uncovering of Orwell then and, a re, and removing the veil is removing the queen? She has certainly been unqueened, right? She, she is unqueened as soon as the king shows up by her bedside. 
But the other thing, um, the other thing to remember, there are two things, I think, to remember, which push us in different sorts of directions. One is, um, Dorwood, as you were suggesting, we also need to remember the king's connection with the gods, right? That is the traditional um, idea of the divine blood uh, in the kings. So there's an association there, right? And, you know, one certainly can hear the question in the sense of saying, you know, who against whom is she setting her wits? I mean, we saw her set her wits against the gods in book one, right? Um, and we have heard her tone already changing about that, such that now here in book two, if it were the god saying to her, do you begin to set your wits against mine? We might possibly expect to hear her now say, oh, no, 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 mercy. Right? Um, so that's one side of it. But the other side that we have to remember is where else have we recalled the king over the course of the last, you know, seven, eight, nine chapters? Right? What keeps making us remember the king? in the, you know, more recent events of Orwell's life. Remember when, um, yeah, Argent Paintbrush, remember when um, the king um, made a bit of an appearance at the end of the conversation with Ansett, right? Um, it is enough, right? And her desire to torture Ansett to death. Um, remember Psyche saying, you look just like our father when you said that. Um, the queen is not the, as queen, when she set her wits against the king, when she stood up to the king, she became like, the, it was like one of the first steps towards becoming the queen. But again, it was about her veil, in part. Um, but um, in another sense, the queen and the king have always been similar. She is keen to distance herself, and again, there's no question she is a way better ruler than her father was in every way. And yet, that element is there in her. Um, and yeah, Auros, I think you're right to recall that the way in which Orwell never really got closure from the king's death and how she transitioned too quickly into becoming queen for that to get resolved, that moment when he dies, the death of the king, which should have rocked her entire world and changed her entire... and she didn't even notice because she and Bardia were, like, trying on armor um, in the king's room at that time. Um, and yes, um, she buried Orowal at the same time that the king was buried. Yes, exactly, exactly. So there's a, things are all full tangled together there with herself and her queenness and the death of Orowal and um, everything else. Um, 
So she's calling for mercy and begging not to have to go further down. She's below the pillar room. Uh, and now she's dug another hole and is being thrown down again. Down, down, like the stone of Ungit comes up, up. There's no fox to help you here, said my father. We're far below any dens of that foxes can dig. There's hundreds of tons of earth between you and the deepest of them. Then we leaped down into the hole and fell further than before, but again alighted unhurt. It was far darker here, yet I could see that we were in yet another pillar room. But this was of living rock, and water trickled down the walls of it. Though it was so like the two shallower rooms, this was far the smallest. And, I look, and as I looked, I could see that it was getting smaller still. The roof was closing in on us. I tried to cry out to him, If you're not quick, we shall be buried. But I was smothering, and no voice came from me. Then I, then I thought, He doesn't care. It's nothing for him to be buried, for he's dead already. Yes, the going further down is more than just a reference to the mines. We have the reference to the mines, and now, now we're in the Deadlands, right? He doesn't mind being here down, down in the deep rock, right? With the walls closing in to smother, because he's already been buried. It's nothing for him to be buried. He's dead already. The dead belong here, right? She doesn't belong here. Um, and yes, so in a sense, Orwell has been digging her own grave. Yes, yes, absolutely. But yet, Eric, you are absolutely correct that um, it's living rock. So it's beyond human craft. It's where Ungit is from. Notice another implication of this. Why are they all the pillar room? Why are they all the pillar room? Um, at first, one is inclined to imagine that the real pillar room is the one up in the palace, right? Her pillar room is the real pillar room. And then for some reason, as she goes down, she finds these other, like, imitation pillar rooms below her, right? Below her pillar room. But this is the point, I think, and it's the, it's the living rock um, that makes me think it. I believe we begin to suspect that maybe the causality works the other way around, right? Um, that it's not her pillar room, which is the real, but rather she works in a pillar room because the real pillar room is down here. Her pillar room is only an imitation of this pillar room, right? an artificial reconstruction of this pillar room. Kind of like a man dressed up as a bird knocking on a door with a wooden sword and pretending to be born out of an egg. Right? That what we see up in the human world can only be attempts to point to those deeper things, as the sacred stories do, pointing to the deeper truths that lie beneath them. Not about rain falling from the sky, but about more than that. About something that 
you can't just point to. The priest of Unget, the old priest of Unget, is not entirely wrong. Holy places are always dark places. Like this pillar room of living stone. Down deep, deep, far below any dens that foxes can dig. The fox can't understand this. This is below what the fox can understand. And um, remember even Psyche had a sense of that. Remember when she, I think this was in their conversation in the room with Five Sides, um, when she and Orwal were talking about the fox um, and how I think that's when it was. I can't remember if it was there. It was their first conversation on the mountain, but I think it was there. Um, when she talks about her admiration for the fox's teachings and how the fox always um, always had a, um, you know, a part of the truth, but that there's more that the fox doesn't understand. And if you remember, what she said was, um, to the fox, the world was a city, right? But remember, she said outside the city. Like, he's only seeing part of the story because there's more outside the city. Outside the city, there's, there's earth. And things come up out of the earth. Crops come up out of the earth. That feeds the cities. And all of those things, the fox didn't see, the fox didn't understand, right? Um, the earth that is below the city, the human city, you know, of the world, the, the mortal world as city in the fox's definition. But there is earth beneath it. And growth and life comes from that earth, but it goes down deep, deep below. Um, that's I think also something that's very much connected to what we see here. Uh, this pillar room of living rock. Um, it's getting smaller. The pillar room is getting smaller as well. The pillar room is becoming a grave. And I agree, I believe, um, uh, I believe, Devor, it was you, um, saying the pillar room as her prison, right? Um, and so once again, we, we can see these things all kind of coming together. Um, her work, her prison, the mines, the grave, right? Um, and notice how Bardia is woven through all of those things, right? Work, prison, mines, and, and grave. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. Who is Ungit? said he, still holding my hand. Then he led me across the floor, and a long way off before we came to it, I saw that mirror on the wall, just where it had always been. At the sight of it my terror increased, and I fought with all my strength not to go on. But his hand had grown very big now, and it was as soft and clinging as Bata's arms, or as the tough clay we had been digging, or as the dough of a huge loaf. I was not so much dragged as sucked along till we stood right in front of the mirror. And in it I saw him, looking as he had looked that other day when he led me to the mirror long ago. But my face was the face of Ungit, 
as I had seen it that day in her house. Who is Ungit? asked the king. I am Ungit. My voice came wailing out of me, and I found that I was in the cool daylight in my own chamber. So it had been what we call a dream. All right, we'll come back to that last paragraph in a second. Okay. Um... This dream culminates in this third pillar room, deep down. Remember the reference in the description of the Ungit Stone coming up, where others lived and worked? The reference to work, I think, being important, is the pillar room is her workplace, right? Um, we have this, it culminates in the recapitulation of the mirror moment. When the king dragged her to the mirror and forced her to contemplate her face in the mirror, forced her to confront her own physical ugliness at the time, right? And what happens here is something very similar, but not quite the same, right? The face that she sees in the mirror is not her face. It's the face of Ungit that she had seen on the Ungit stone. The face that, remember, in the stone with a thousand faces, where everyone sees a different face, right? That's the face. That face that she saw in the stone is the face that she now sees on herself. And it's a hideous face. It was a grotesque, fat, uh, clingy, like the description of uh, Bata's arms is a reference to that paragraph, the one paragraph I skipped, which I now bitterly regret skipping. Um, soft and clinging as Bata's arms. Um, yes, yeah, so Jackie, on the one hand, definitely, she identifies herself as the devourer. Yes. Um, all of those things, and this fits right together with the insight she was having from her conversation with Ansett, right? She is the devourer the great spider sitting at the center of the web and devouring the lives of men. She is the one who has taken and taken and taken from others and given nothing back. Hers is the face of Ungit that she saw dribbling blood down its chin when the sacrifice of the woman was given. Devor, I agree it is interesting that she wanted to kill Orawal, and she did kill Bata. Yes. Yes. Um, and yes, Eric, I agree. She now sees herself to be as ugly as she thought Ungit to be. Um, yes. Yes. She concealed her 
physical ugliness with her veil. And now she is confronting something else, a deeper kind of ugliness. Her question to Arnhem, who is Ungut, gets turned back on her by the king. And she gives the right answer. I am Ungut. She recognizes this. However, there is a note of hope in this moment. Do you see it? Do you see the moment of hope? The hope, I think, is contained in the face that she sees. Um, the Bata face, the face in the Ungit stone. Liz, exactly so. The face that she sees, the Ungit face that she sees, is the very Ungit who gave such comfort to the peasant woman. There's no goddess like Ungit. Great comfort, yes, queen. She has been wrong all her life about herself. She is now realizing in a far more profound way than her father cruelly forced her to acknowledge on that earlier day at the mirror that she is ugly. Not just that her face is ugly, but that her soul is ugly. That she has devoured people, that, she, that her very loves were hatred. She's even come within a few inches of acknowledging that her love for Psyche was the same, right? She has seen the devouring of the gods as she was seeing in the House of Ungit that day, how they devour and give nothing back. She has complained, made her loud complaint against the gods. Um, and she now sees that she is as bad as they. But there is the hope that maybe she might bring as much comfort as they. She's been wrong about herself. She is way uglier than she thought. She's as ugly as the god. She's as ugly as Ungit herself. The hope comes from the fact that perhaps there is something she has also never understood Ungit either. Just as she could not comprehend the joy of the people or the comfort of the peasant woman who received comfort from Ungit. Um, now, business about the dreaming. So it had been what we call a dream. But I must give warning that from this time onward, they so drenched me, they being the gods, of course, they so drenched me with seeings that I cannot well discern dream from waking, nor tell which is the truer. This vision, anyway, allowed no denial. Without question, it was true. 
It was I who was Ungit. That ruinous face was mine. I was that Bata thing, that all-devouring, womb-like, yet barren thing. Gloam was a web, I the swollen spider, squat at its center, gorged with men's stolen lives. <laughs> Liz says, look who finally knows how to recognize a message from the gods. Absolutely. The irony of that, right? But notice another thing. She has already begun not to answer, but to deflect the question. D is this real or is this a dream? Right. The, the We get here the first part. She'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, uh, hang on. How much later? Like, is it the next slide? No, it is not the next slide. Um, anyway, um, she comes back to it soon. In basically questioning, questioning the, the, um, the, the meaningfulness of that question. Is it real or is it a dream? If in your dream you are seeing things that are true, does it matter if they actually happened? She talks about being drenched in seeings, that it's hard for her to discern dream from waking, or to tell which is truer. Because the things that she sees in her dream may well be at least as true as the things that she can see. And remember, this has been her experience all along. She saw reality, but didn't see reality. She didn't see truth, right, before. When she went back and looked at that reality again in the course of writing book one, she began to see truth. Yeah. Um... Okay, well, let's keep going. Because she makes here a radical resolve. I will not be Ungit, said I. I got up, shivering as with fever, from my bed and bolted the door. I took down my old sword, the very same that Bardia had taught me to use, and drew it. It looked such a happy thing, and indeed, and it was indeed a most true, perfect, fortunate blade, that tears came into my eyes. Sword, said I, you have had a happy life. You killed Argon. You saved Bardia. Now for your masterpiece. It was all foolishness, though. The sword was too heavy for me now. My grip, think of a veined, claw-like hand, skinny knuckles, was childish. I would never be able to strike home, and I had seen enough of wars to know what a feeble thrust would do. This way of ceasing to be Ungit was now too hard for me. I sat down, the cold, small, helpless thing I was, on the edge of my bed, and thought again. There must, whether the gods see it or not, be something great in the mortal soul, for suffering, it seems, is infinite, and our capacity without limit. At the same time that she is confronting her physical weakness, she no longer has the physical strength that she used to have to wield her sword. She wants to kill herself with the same sword that killed Argon, the same sword that saved Bardia. But she can't. She physically can't. She wants to, but she can't. This way of ceasing to be Ungit was now too hard for me. 
She is now only a cold, small, helpless thing. But suffering is infinite and, uh, and human capacity without limit. Um, and yes, serious Turin vibes from this. Totally agree. Sword didn't answer back, though, so there's that. Um, but yes, Eric, good. It's a reversal of her previous threat to kill herself and Psyche. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, she's threatened suicide before. By Blade. Right? This is not the same knife that she stabbed through her arm before. Um, but she threatened to kill herself. To stab herself to death before. In order to coerce Psyche. And now she wants to do it in order to cease being unget. Notice once again, she has not confessed what she did to Psyche. She confessed what she did to Bardia. She's acknowledged that. She's kind of, she's gotten closure on that, but not with Psyche. That still hasn't happened. We see no evidence anyway that it's happened. There are indirect things that suggest that, that we notice, remember how we've like approached it a couple times, but she never actually says it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Ambrosia says, once again, she tries to embrace death <clears throat> rather than change her heart. But see, she has changed. This is the response of her heart, or her vision. She sees the truth about herself. Weren't we complaining for weeks and weeks that she was so blind to herself? So blind to how horrible she was being to everybody else? Well, she gets it now. She gets it now. And she wants to stop it. She's wanting not even exactly to commit suicide so much as to execute herself. To slay the horrible, bloated spider sitting squat in the middle of the web. Right? Um... Yes, fire spawns, I think it's a really important thing to observe. That she's now perhaps blind in a different direction. She hasn't seen all the good that she's done, right? She's now seeing only the bad, imagining herself to be merely a devourer, right? As if she did no good. Um, yes, I agree. She does not have the whole picture yet, clearly. Um... But as I say, remember there's always been this sort of separation with her, Orowal and the Queen, right? Um, and self-destruction has always been a part of that division. When Orowal and the Queen were separated, right, began, when she began to separate into two people, Orowal and the Queen, she set about trying to kill Orowal. Now, I think it's the Queen she's trying to execute that the queen is unget, but it's a, little, it's a little bit uncertain as to whom exactly 
she's trying to kill here, right? But um, <clears throat> but again, th- that it that seems to be kind of wrapped up in this. Um, uh, here's the other passage I was hoping to get to. Of the things that followed, I cannot at all say whether they were what men call real or what men call dream. And for all I can tell, the only difference is that what many see, we call a real thing. And what only one sees, we call a dream. But things that many see may have no taste or moment in them at all. And things that are shown only to one may be spears and water spouts of truth from the very depth of truth. Oh, Maureen, yes, her claw-like hand is like a bird's hand. Yes, I like that. Very good. Um... Ooh, Jackrabbit, that's excellent. Now that she's seen her face in the mirror, she's become a version of the archetypal triple goddess, Ungit the crone, Queen the matron, and Orowal the maid. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah, this is a really poetic refutation of materialism, Eric. Um uh, what you see physically isn't the most real of things. Yes. So again, this is where she challenges, as I was suggesting, um, any kind of um, meaning to differentiating between what whether what she's describing is real or whether what she's describing is just a dream. Right? It doesn't matter. What she's describing are the things that she saw, the things that happened to her. Some of them might be things that other people could also see. Some of the things might be things that only she could see. But it doesn't matter a bit um, as far as whether they're true and whether they're important. Um, So we need to be prepared to be flexible. We need to... This is a very direct... Twice now, in pretty close proximity, we've gotten what amounts to a pretty clear instruction. Stop asking that question. Is what she's describing real, really happening or not? Um, it's going to be no longer a relevant question as she moves, um, as she were, uh, as she moves forward. Um, I should stop there. I'm really tempted to go on um, to the next bit, her trip down to the river. Um, But I think I shan't because I'm not, there's, I mean, we're pretty much out of time. There's no way I'm going to get through much of it. So I'm going to stop before we begin it instead. And we'll start there. Um, We'll start there too. Um, Yeah. Okay. So... Next time. Next time we will begin there and we'll continue. We should get past the... We should get into chapter three. I, I've told you... Great. I would encourage you to keep rereading it uh, so that it is, uh, it's uh, fresh in your mind and um, it, helps to, it helps to be able to parse it to be rereading. Um, but, um, but we should get into chapter three at least next time. Um, What's my estimate for remaining sessions? I have honestly no clue. I have honestly no clue. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I would guess, though. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're going to. Um, I think we got a fighting chance of finishing the book in April. It's what I think. Um, but it's just a guess. I, 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 uh, I have no intention of rushing the end of this book. Um, even if that is a wholly selfish thing of me to do, because as we've been going through this together, I have been seeing more things and making more connections than I ever have before. Um, and I don't think that, although I've spoken many times about how moving and mind-blowing I have always found the end of this book, I'm still not sure I've ever understood it. So I'm hoping to understand it better with your help as we go through. So um, anyway, we're, um, we, we shan't be that long. Notice that even though... The only paragraph we skipped, I regretted skipping, and I've learned my lesson about that. Um, uh, notice that we're still doing, we got through a whole bunch of slides today, so don't worry. Don't worry. We're good. We're going to be fine. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. But I should be able to be here next week. So I'll be here next week, and then I'll, I'll be away the week after that. Um, but we will, um, we'll, we will we'll definitely get through uh, Orwell's experience at the river's edge next time and then uh, uh, hopefully continue forward here so all right thanks everybody i will talk to you guys next week bye now